chapter 6. And uh, there we want to look at verses 12 down to 16. So that's where our text is taken. Revelation chapter 6 at verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I saw and looked, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of Him who was seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Well, we have been looking at these seven seals that have been uh, unveiled. You remember back in chapter 5, a book, a scroll, as it were, was put into the hands of the Lamb. That is Jesus. And uh, it was said in that chapter that He was worthy, that no one else in all the world was worthy except the Lamb to open the scroll the scroll, to unloose the seals, and to look on them. And by implication, to set in motion the things that those seals spoke of, the things that that book spoke of. And that was really the, the events of world history. That's what that, that book contained. And we saw as those seals were opened, uh, certain things coming about. Horses riders coming out, uh, unleashing various uh, forms of destruction, persecution, famine, war upon the earth. And that has really characterized the history of the world from the time Jesus first came to the present day and will do until He comes again. In the midst of all of that, we are to understand that it is first and foremost a book that is in the hands of Jesus. It is in the hands of the one who was crucified and who was made a sacrifice for sin. So he is worthy. He knows, he understands uh, uh, the things about that book. And that we need not fear that anything is going to be done unjustly or unfairly. That his perfect will is going to be worked out. Now, in those uh, um, uh, initial seals, we saw there uh, a white horse, we saw a red horse, a black horse, a pale horse, and all these horses coming and bringing with them, as I said, all manner of death and destruction, war and famine and so on. Now, those things happen in cycles down through history. We're not to see one horse coming along and then stopping and then giving way to another horse so that they can do their thing and so on. It's not 
chronological, but simultaneous. We're seeing a stable of horses unleashed on the world. So that famine, persecution, the rise and fall of empires, all of those things are happening simultaneously and overlapping uh, in history. And so this is what uh, um, uh, the book of Revelation is showing us. Not something that is one thing happening and stopping and another thing starting. Many of these events are overlapping with one another. And they have been over the last 2,000 years. And so uh, here he comes to the sixth seal. He comes to the sixth seal. That's hard to say, sixth seal. Uh, I may have trouble with that today. Uh, he comes to this seal that comes after five, and he, he shows here that it's something that is coming to an end. Rather than these horses where the events are overlapping again and again through the fifth and sixth and tenth and twentieth centuries, He's looking at a period of time at the end of human history when judgment will take place. What he calls at the end, the great day of the wrath of God. The great day of God's wrath has now come. And it tells us of a day when there will be a complete overthrow of all earthly rulers and powers. So every power and authority in earth and in hell itself will be now put to, put to, uh, uh, to, to shame. And in doing that, in describing that, John sees in a vision form um, what often characterized the Old Testament prophets. Now, when the Old Testament prophets would go to describe the destruction of a neighboring kingdom, they would use language that described the end of the world. In other words, this is the end of the world for Babylon. This is the end of the world for Egypt. And so in describing that, they would say the stars would fall from the sky, the sun will be black and the moon will be turned to blood, all of these things. Using apocalyptic language to say this is the degree to which you Babylon or you Egypt is are going to meet your end. And that is what's going on here. John is seeing in vision form the disillusion of creation as it is. To say, look, there's no going beyond this. We're not we're not in the regular cycles of war and famine and persecution again and again and again. God is putting a, a period at the end of the sentence. He's bringing all things to a conclusion. And so he describes it in terms that we see here. A great earthquake. The sun becoming black as sackcloth. The full moon becoming like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as fig tree. Uh, the fig tree sheds its winter fruits uh, when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. Every mountain and island removed from its place. In other words, John is describing for us the end of all things. The end of all things. 
that God is moving in a way that he has never done before. He's bringing what those things were. In the Old Testament, they were only shadows and forerunners of what God was going to do at the end of time. So the flood, the destruction of Babylon, the curses on Egypt, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., we're all preparing the human race for the great and awesome day of the Lord that we are still to uh, see at the end of time. And so Isaiah, for example, uses this kind of similar language when describing, for example, the destruction of Babylon. In Isaiah uh, 13, at verse 10, um, for he says, For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light, and the sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. And the beginning of chapter 13, the oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. So he is not necessarily saying that these are the things the, the physical things that will visit the earth at the end of time. One person has described it this way. He says, just as the salvation of God's people is spoken of in terms of creation, so God's judgments are spoken in terms of de-creation. The collapse of the universe. God ripping apart and dissolving the fabric of of creation. So, in other words, he's saying God uses the language of creation to describe blessing and salvation. The God, says Paul, who called light out of darkness, there he's talking about creation, let there be light, has shone in our hearts to give us the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, he's using creation language to say this is what salvation is like. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Now, what this person is saying and suggesting about this passage is that what God is doing is in, in, in describing that creation coming apart is not blessing and salvation, but now judgment. The great day of the Lord has come. And so he's using language that is apocalyptic. He's not uh, asking us to say that this will be a literal manifestation of what will go on in the universe. Sometimes we worry when we hear those two words put together, not literal. But we're, we've already seen how John has been using imagery, for example, like the Lamb, he says, I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Well, we're not, as I say, to expect when we get to heaven, instead of seeing Jesus, to see a lamb with cuts and bruises all over. John is seeing something that is conveying something else. And when he is, see, he is seeing a vision, he is definitely seeing the heavens and the sky roll up. He's definitely seeing an earthquake and the moon turn to blood. He's seeing those things. But he is simply describing 
the reverse of the things of salvation and describing a judgment event. The decreation, the destruction of all things. And it's the same, uh, I think, with, when it comes to, for example, the sky vanished, uh, or rather, verse 13, the stars of the sky fell to the earth. Well, we know ourselves that the moon, the, 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 our own star, the sun, if it moved even a few hundred thousand miles closer to the earth, would simply dissolve. The earth would dissolve. It would be no more. What are we to make of these stars falling to the sky as fruit that is falling off a tree? Now, what John is trying to get across there, you might say, well, that's, that's, a, that's a terrible thing. And I believe that to be literal. Well, whether you believe it to be literal or not, I think, I think what John is get, trying to get across is something far more fearful than that. John is communicating a message of judgment here. The end of all things as we know it. And so Jesus uses himself the same language that we saw in Matthew 24. Immediately after the tribulation uh, of those days. And I believe that that is what John describes as those four horsemen that will go out with famine and persecution and war and so on. The tribulation that will come upon the earth. The moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the heavens and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Again, there is Jesus talking about the stars of heaven falling from the sky. Does he mean to, for us to understand that in a literal sense, that the Milky Way will suddenly convulse in upon the earth? I think rather he is seeking to show and press upon us something more important, and that is the judgment of God that is signified in the removal of all that we have come to know, the constants, the rising of the sun, the, the, the appearing of the, the moon, all of these things, the unshakable mountains and the, the seas and all of these things will now be taken out of the way. And I think that's emphasized here as he goes on in chapter 6, in verse 15. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? So John has just described for us in manifold different ways, the complete deconstruction of creation in getting across this message of judgment. He talks about the moon and the stars and the sky and all of these things to say it's going to be total. Likewise, he describes all of these different people from all sorts of walks of society to say that God's judgment when it comes, will be all-pervasive. It will be people from every walk of life, whether they be kings or whether they be slaves. 
and everything in between, God's judgment will come there. And so it's speaking here of a totality. But rather than them being fearful of the disillusion of the, of the, the cosmos, of, of, of the decreation, of the earthquake and the stars falling to the earth, that would be welcomed by these people. <laughs> That's the strange thing. These things that would strike terror into our hearts. I mean, we were quite fearful when the hurricane came a couple of weeks ago, weren't we? I was up all night when I would hear the wind blowing against the side of the house, wondering if the windows were going to come in and thinking, oh, I'm sure that all my trees have been turned upside down and so on. And uh, these things, and you go on to read about these, the, the moon turned to blood and earthquakes and the sky vanished and rolled up like a scroll. And yet, in verses 15 to the end, it says that these things would be welcomed by these people if it but kept them from the wrath of God and of the Lamb. Friends, we need to stop and think and let this, these things sink into our minds. That there is a fate worse than death. That's why the writer of Hebrews, who was so encouraging and so tender to his people, said how it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And just as we saw Isaiah using apocalyptic language to describe the destruction of Babylon and Egypt in terms of the, the natural phenomena, Isaiah also uses the same language that is now used here in Revelation 6. Isaiah himself described a day when mankind will enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts from before the terror, uh, from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. So Isaiah there is also describing a judgment so severe that mankind is fleeing to the cliffs to hide themselves from God's wrath. But friends, what makes this wrath even more severe and more terrifying is that it is qualified as the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb. What difference does that make? Thomas Boston, a Scottish preacher and theologian, said to be condemned by Him who came to save sinners must be double damnation. In other words, as the Bible tells us, every time the Gospel is preached, there is an ambassador standing in this pulpit. 2 Corinthians 5, we are ambassadors. God making His plea through us that God, because He has made Jesus to be sin for us, there is the Lamb. He has made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God. 
Therefore, the message is not only spoken, but it's the plea. Pleading with people. And that's what makes this wrath so particularly awful because it is the wrath of one who for weeks and months and years in some cases, by His Spirit pleaded with people to come and believe and escape the wrath to come. It is the wrath of the One who said that the Son of Man has come to give His life as a ransom for many. It is the wrath of the One who said that the Son of Man will be delivered over into the hands of the chief priests and He will be spit upon and He will be beaten and He will be crucified. It is His wrath. And it's a perfect wrath. It's a perfect justice. Because He is the Lamb of God. Just as that book was put into His hands because He is worthy, He is now given the, the, the act of judgment because He is worthy. And so it becomes a, a doubly terrifying moment, does it not? When John qualifies it by saying, this is not just the, the wrath of God, it's the wrath of the One who said, I am meek and lowly of heart. Come unto Me. All ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He pleaded with people. And maybe He has pleaded with you down through the years. And you have kept Him at bay. You have resisted. You have seen perhaps salvation in simply going to church. And that's it. Being a good son. Being a good daughter. Being a good individual. And those things are all very good. But the Word, the Lamb, blows all that away. The Word, the Lamb, says that there has been a sacrifice for sinners, for all. That's why He describes the whole totality from kings to slaves. No one, no one escapes. And there's no other way except through the blood of the Lamb. In other words, through what Jesus did on that cross as a substitute for sinners like you and I. It is that way in which we must come. Or not stand at all. And just by looking at this list of people, we ask ourselves, is it worth it anyway to resist? To try to have our feet in both camps? To try to have our Christian faith over here uh, just enough to soothe our conscience, but to have the world and build our little, little empires over here. Friends, who are these people that are now crying out for the mountains to fall on them? But kings and the great ones and generals and the rich. People who all their lives desired all the things that you desire in your life. That job, that promotion. Can't go to church today. Got to get ahead. Got to get this. Got to get that. If my workplace wants me to say this, I say it. I jump. I say, how high? 
I, I, I will deny what needs to be denied so that I can get ahead and so that the world will like me and that the people will embrace me. These people are now crying out for the mountains to fall on them because they're so full of shame and guilt because these are the things that they pursued in their lives to the exclusion of God's salvation. Friends, that brings it right home to each one of us today and asks us, where am I? Where am I going? If these people were so full of guilt and shame and terror that they pleaded, I mean, they would have welcomed even if, even if the stars could fall to the earth literally. They would welcome it. To escape. We've known what that's like, haven't we? You've done something. You've embarrassed yourself just at a very superficial level. You put your hands over your face. You, you want to hide. Oh, I can't believe I said that. You might even run into the room. You want to hide. And these people from every walk of life come to realize as they now stand and gaze into the face of a holy, righteous God who now they understand means business about sin. That what they did in their heart weren't, wasn't just a, a mistake or an oversight. But now they understand that their covetousness, their lying, their lust, their anger, everything was a, not only an act against other people, but it was an act of cosmic treason against the God of the universe. That's why he implores, he employs rather, cosmic elements like the stars and the sky because they're all his. It's a rebellion against the God of the universe. It's not just your neighbor or your friend or your wife or your husband that you've insulted. It is God. And that's why the, the, the solution was so severe. That's why it was predicted hundreds of years before in the prophet Isaiah who said, who not only spoke of the judgment to come, but said, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Who was He? Who is He that Isaiah speaks of? For unto us a son is born, unto us a child is given. He shall be called the mighty God. And the government shall be upon His shoulders. That's the He upon whom God laid the iniquity of us all. The solution was terrible and terrifying, but necessary. And the result of rejecting that love and rejecting that provision is terrifying and final. And that's why we, as we are able to hear God's Word, not, it's not just in Revelation, you see. Jesus said it. The prophets said it. It goes throughout the whole of the Scriptures. It's not just one person deciding that they're going to come up with these things. John says it because Jesus said it, the prophets said it, and so on. And so it's uniform right throughout the Word of God. 
And so, here we find ourselves looking in on these descriptions of that final day that will come indiscriminately upon kings and generals and the rich and the great ones of the earth, slave and free. And in the quietness of this church, we have the opportunity of hearing and responding once again to the offer of salvation by the same Jesus who has been pleading with you all of these years and so on. And so we, if we have not looked to Jesus for salvation, let this picture, let this image sober us Sober us to see how serious God is. I mean, friends, the cross, which is the central event of our faith, the death and resurrection of Jesus, if God was dealt so severely with His own beloved Son, think of that. The angels adored Him. They hid their eyes from His glory. He was so beautiful and radiant. But in order to save your soul and my soul, He had to put Him to a shame. He had to make Him a curse on the cross. Sinful men couldn't even bear to look at Him. He was so disgraceful looking. If that was the case, then surely we must throw off all unbelief. Throw off all wavering and indecision and come and call upon Him and take Him as our Lord. What, what, there's still so much mercy to be had that, we, that even now, even despite our resisting Him perhaps all these years, that even now He says, if you call upon Me, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And friends, Jesus just doesn't speak it with His words, does He? He spoke it with His blood. He spoke it with His agony, with His tears. They all communicate to us how God means business. We must be shaken out of our indifference, shaken out of our, our, our lethargic spirit. And Ask God by the power of Spirit to come and enlighten our minds. Show us the truth of these things that we might behold the Lamb of God. Not experience His wrath, but behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and takes away my sin today. Let's pray.